The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we dig into the world of bioarchaeology to discover what a bunch of dead people's bones can tell us about our own past. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Brenna Hassett, a bioarchaeologist whose work looks at the clues to our past lives locked in the evidence of our bones and teeth. She is one quarter of Team Trowel Blazers, a science advocacy organization dedicated to resetting imaginations and supporting women's contribution to the earth sciences. Her new book, Built on Bones, 15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death, uses the scientific techniques of archaeology and her research expertise from sites around the globe to examine the effects of our recent urban evolution written in our very bones. Brenna, welcome to Science for the People. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so we should probably start by defining some terms for people who maybe don't know exactly what these terms mean. So let's start with what is archaeology and what is bioarchaeology? How are they the same? How are they different? Can you, can you set us up with what these fields are? Sure. Um, I think, uh, well, a lot of people, um, particularly depending on their age, will have a particular view of archaeology, which is a Harrison Ford in a slightly beat up hat. Uh, sort of running through the jungle, uh, stealing antiquities. Archaeology is actually slightly more academic than that, and it encompasses the study of the human past. So it basically can go anywhere from, um, you know, very, very old and not even particularly human, sort of, you know, our ancestral past, to um, quite modern things. And it encompasses all of the various different bits of, uh, you know, people thinking about how humans interacted and how we got to where we are, to all of the scientific techniques that we use to build up the evidence base for making these sort of theoretical jumps. And bioarchaeology is the type of archaeology that I do. And you could probably define it any number of ways. But uh, what I really mean, and what most people mean when they say bioarchaeology, is that we're looking at the bodies, we're looking at the actual uh, sort of um, biological remains of the thing that archaeologists are most interested in, which is humans. So an archaeologist, are they not as much looking at the skeletal remains and more looking at the kind of situation that the remains are found in and what's found with them? Yeah, so, uh, so, so archaeology is like, you know, the big overall sort of, you know, big tent, big umbrella that everything else sits under. So bioarchaeology is just a sort of part of archaeology. Um, archaeologists would be, you know, they could, they could do any number of things sort of uh, day to day but generally would probably be um, looking at the evidence that we have from archaeological excavation, so from going out and digging up sites and seeing what you find there, to analyzing the finds that you actually you know, get. So looking at bits of pottery, looking at bits of animal bone, looking at little tiny plant remains, um, or they may be sort of developing, uh, you know, cool new computerized techniques like um, uh, spatial mapping and statistics to show us where villages show up versus rivers and things like this throughout the human story. So there's actually a, a huge number of little disciplines uh, inside archaeology that people can kind of specialize in. So you get, um, you get, you know, people in an archaeology department, one person is a sort of, you know, computer mapping whiz. The other person spends half their time in an anatomy department. Uh, there are a bunch of people with microscopes. There are a bunch of people with armchairs. 
thinking about theory. So it's a it's it's a broad church. That does sound like it brings in a lot of different kind of sub disciplines and I don't know, like co disciplines, multidisciplinary. Is co disciplines a word? I don't think it is. I think well, interdisciplinary might be, yeah, sort of where we're going. But um, you know, archaeology sort of we we have to do the best we can to to bring these uh, you know, to, to understand the past because we're, you know, nobody's around to tell us how it was. <laughs> So uh, you, you really have to um, drill down into actually quite a lot of science, which I think people may not realize exactly how firmly embedded modern archaeology is in science. So uh, I, will, I will let on a small secret, which is not actually in any way a secret, but um, my real PhD is in dental anthropology. Really and interesting. That, that's, that's a real thing you can do. Um, just, so that is an incredibly specialized uh, my, my expertise is uh, largely in the anatomy of teeth. So I could have been a dentist and actually made some money in my life. But instead, no, we went with the interesting stuff. Um, so, so you actually get this huge number of people who have all these little different scientific uh, sort of um, approaches, or they have this great understanding of kind of how humans work, and they pull all of this together. And what we're all trying to do is tell the story of us. So one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is how upfront you are throughout about the challenges and the limitations of bioarchaeology, including in some cases, how uh, debatable some of the findings and conclusions are when there is some, not controversy, but when it is very difficult to tell what the conclusion should be. Well, I think, uh, you know, there's a general rule of thumb is that you should you should never trust anyone who's 100% certain about anything. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good rule. It's a a bad idea. And, uh, you know, with with, uh, science and even, you know, even sort of the harder science that um, archaeologists apply, uh, you know, we, we develop these theories, but because our evidence base is actually quite difficult to sort of say, you know, we've seen everything, we've found everything, now we're just counting up the numbers. So to give you an example of um, uh, how, you know, this uncertainty comes up with bioarchaeology, you could think about um, how we would discover what kind of people, how many people, uh, what ages, what mix of people live in uh, a place in the past at any given time. The obvious way we would do that would be to dig up a cemetery, right? Um, so if you if you were to just take the example of if someone excavated something like a Christian cemetery, and there are rules for how you were buried in the Christian cemetery. So uh, we, you know, an archaeologist who didn't know these rules would go and they dig them up and and they'd look at the cemetery and say, oh, there are no babies, but there are mostly old people. I mean, we were pretty sure that the past wasn't made up of people who were, you know, entirely octogenarian or, you know, the, the past was not inhabited by old people. But of course, old people are the ones who die generally. Um, so those are the remains we find. So we actually have to take a couple steps back to try and get back to an interpretation. The other thing they might find, which is a cultural factor, um, which we also have to think about things like this, is that um, for in many Christian denominations, uh, babies aren't born, uh, aren't buried in the same cemetery as adults. 
So when you look at the evidence, it seems so easy that you could just say, okay, well, there were this many people and they had this children of these, you know, different ages, but actually there's a whole bunch of factors going into what we find um, that means that we have to really consider carefully how we're interpreting it. And I think um, it's, it's an ongoing problem for our discipline. We're just not thinking through quite enough. I can definitely see how it'd be a big challenge because you have these remains, which is obviously a source of data and a source of evidence that you can look at and examine, but it's also a sort of biased resource because you don't have what you don't have. So it's difficult to try and figure out what it is you're missing in your sample, I guess. Yeah, it's very, so um, it turns out that humans have actually come up with any number of very creative ways to dispose of their dead. Um, and this is something that, you know, you think, you think it's difficult digging up a Christian cemetery. Well, gosh, you know, try finding all those cremations. That's very difficult to identify from little bits of burnt bone, whether it was a male or female or what age. And actually, um, you know, scientific techniques do allow us to get at some of this. Um, teeth are very good for this. Uh, they don't burn so easy. But um, if you think of, you know, there, people might bury their dead by uh, richly exposing them, by um, uh, keeping them in the family home for several generations, maybe buried under the floorboards. Uh, there, there are a variety of ways, you know, or putting them out to sea. Uh, everyone's probably seen the sort of, you know, Viking boat burial uh, with the big flames. Um, it's very difficult to dig that up. So, so we actually have to really be aware that we're not seeing the whole picture and we have to kind of make our guesses based on that. But it's not actually as, as sort of depressing as it sounds because we can actually learn a lot. So if we go back to that kind of, um, you know, church cemetery idea, um, there are all sorts of little bits of, of differences between people we can get at. So if you think about um, where would people like to be buried, most people want to be buried near the center of the church, uh, near, near the altar or near the aisle. Um, so the earlier burials or the uh, people who had enough money to pay for the most expensive burials, they might be closer in to the sort of center of the church. So when you dig, you might be able to actually start telling little differences between people's social and economic lives in the past. And that's that's what bioarchaeology actually gets really excited about. That's that's what we want to know. We want to know about the, you know, sort of how people lived and how it affected, you know, how human society sort of organized itself. So there are some fairly cynical people in the world. I'm sure nobody is surprised to learn. And I, from conversations with some of these cynical people, I have heard them sort of say that a lot of archaeology is highly speculative, and it's not necessarily, quote unquote, worth it to do a lot of the time, because some of the conclusions are so highly speculative, and there's no way to prove it out either way. So, so what do you say to someone like that, who who's a bit kind of snobby about whether or not it's quote unquote worth it to do archaeology or bioarchaeology. Well, I, I'm sure they've never spent an entire semester counting out tiny two millimeter fragments of the same three types of shell, um, because that's when you know it's real evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking back to some undergrad uh, projects that I was involved in, so several several pounds of shell we had to identify. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, people can be cynical about, uh, you know, knowledge and, and how we know anything. But at some point, that becomes a question for the philosophers. And I think they have even worse funding than we do. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I think 
most archaeologists can point to a really solid evidence base for the, um, the, the arguments that they make, for the cases they put forward, for how we lived in the past. And I certainly feel that, um, I mean, I, I have a pretty scientific specialty, so I really am. Uh, I, I sort of uh, had a, a visitor position in an anatomy department. You know, I spend a lot of my time chopping up teeth and writing learned articles about uh, enamel formation, which is is not for everybody. But, um, you know, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the same science that underpins our basic, you know, medicine, our basic understanding of how our bodies work now, that hasn't changed so much. So I think that a lot of archaeology that's built on that uh, has, some, has some, you know, that's a pretty solid framework. Do you think a lot of that cynicism sometimes that archaeology gets uh, pegged with is from some of the kind of Indiana Jones-esque television and movies that we've seen? Uh, you know, I'm not sure Indiana Jones and uh, his later colleague, Laura Croft, were, <laughs> were necessarily like poster children for for uh, quality academic archaeology. I will certainly admit that, um, you know, life as an archaeologist, they're just, they're more goat-based encounters than you would expect in a normal <laughs> office job. Uh, I'm not going to lie. There's just been... There, there are a lot more car accidents, not accidents, just, shall we say, car failures, mm. travel failures, boat failures, all sorts of, well, yeah, transport's usually difficult. But, you know, it's, um, you can see that this sort of cavalier charging around, finding the shiny thing and angering some sort of ancient god, it's, it's not really very sciencey. Um, and it's honestly, it's not, it's not much to do with how sort of modern archaeology is carried out. There was definitely a period where, um, you know, the Victorians, they went around tearing up the Middle East, digging big holes, bringing back treasure, putting it in a museum. Now they won't give it back. Um, and you can see why that might give us a bad name, you know, just sort of treasure hunters. But actually what most people are, are sort of trying to do with archaeology now is, is actually understand what happened rather than get their picture in the papers and a, a shiny golden idol for the mantelpiece. In the book, you described archaeology as a slow burn science. And I mean, a lot of people would say a lot of science is slow burn, that it's a, a slow progress um, of better and better ideas. But do you think archaeology is an even slower process than most other areas of science? I think um, it can be. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, I think that there's a very famous experiment, which is something to do with the viscosity of tar. And there's there's just someone waiting for a little tiny drop of tar to fall off a larger drop of tar and someone is measuring that. And that's taken like 50 years or something. It's like, okay, that's slow. That's slow science. <laughs> um, but, you know, archaeology can be very slow. Uh, if you do it right, you actually are, um, you know, you start at the top. So in, in a sort of sedimentary principle, the oldest stuff at the bottom, and it is, is at the bottom, and it gets covered by newer stuff. So layer on layer on layer on layer of, you know, each, each new person moves into a house, they leave a little more dust, they repaint the walls, you get another layer of paint, you get another layer of dust. And that's, um, so archaeologists are starting at the top. So if you've got thousands of years of human occupation somewhere, and you want to find out what the earliest layer is without losing all the information on the top, we're talking about archaeological digs that have gone for 20, 30, 40 years. I'm not sure if Knossos, which is uh, the, the palace in Crete where the Minotaur was, um, if, if that's been continuously dug since about you know, the late 19, uh, 1890s or if they actually took a break for a couple of wars. 
But, um, you know, these, these are, there are places where people have been digging off and on for 100, if not 200 years. The Sphinx has been harassed mercilessly since the French were in Egypt. So, you know, that's a pretty slow burn. So let's talk about teeth, because I did not know that teeth were such little Trevor, treasure troves of data. That's really fascinating that there is so much we can learn from teeth. Yes. So I, I am unapologetically team teeth. Uh, teeth are totally interesting. And the real reason kind of behind that is, um, well, if you think about your bones, okay, so your bones have uh, the process of how they grow, how they replace old bone with new bone. That's a constant turnover. So um, your bones are, are sort of constantly turning over new material. If you think about it, when you break an arm, as long as you you know put that arm back more or less the right place, it'll eventually knit back together. You won't even know you broke it. Um, with tooth, that breaks once. It does not regrow. That does not, you know, that, that is a, an expensive dental bill for you. That is not an actual, uh, you know, that's, that's not going to magically repair itself, however much we might wish. And that's actually because teeth are essentially fossils. Teeth grow once. They don't have that constant renewal. So when they're growing, they're actually taking up all of the chemistry and other little bits of information that are that are um, coming into the body during the period when they grow. So teeth are formed in childhood. They actually start growing uh, even before you're born. And um, as anyone who has ever had uh, small children, uh, you know, knows that children are basically sharks. They've got two sets. <laughs> you know, you've got the baby teeth, and then they're replaced by the adult teeth. But those are all growing in the kind of critical, interesting early years. So when I talked earlier about only finding old people in the cemetery, because that's, you know, that's when people die, teeth give us the other side of the story, they give us some information about when people were growing. And that's the thing I find really interesting. So because teeth, they capture um, what are essentially isotope signatures, but they will tell you uh, what kind of water you were drinking, where you were in a water cycle, whether you were on top of a mountain or near the sea. They'll even tell you about the geology that you grew up on because all of this little chemistry gets locked into your teeth and your teeth run on such a, a careful, close calendar um, that you can build a schedule of growth. So if you think about tree rings, are you, are you familiar with the tree rings, big circle, little circle, this idea? Yep. Have you heard of this? Yep. So yeah, so the idea that you've got, um, you know, uh, a tree grows and in a bad year, it's got a little tiny circle in the ring when you cut it open and, you know, good year it grows more. Your teeth almost do the same thing. So you can build a weekly schedule of growth from your teeth just by looking at the little tiny lines on the outside. If you let someone like me get at your teeth with a you know, diamond-tipped saw and a, a couple polishing tools, a high-powered polarized microscope, we can actually tell you your growth history by the day. So teeth have amazing amounts of information. Uh, you just have to know how to get at them. So that's interesting. So teeth are kind of like little time capsules from a certain period of everybody's life, which is, I presume, when the tooth was actually developing before it pushed out the baby tooth and, and became your adult teeth. Yeah, so, um, well, the, so the, the chemistry and everything, that's pretty much all, yeah, so when they're growing, so your teeth pretty much stop growing, you know, uh, 15, 16, that's, that's the end of the sort of information cycle, but you can, you can sort of, 
if you were to get hold of everyone's teeth, if you could get baby teeth alongside, you know, those those last wisdom teeth, you can actually build a schedule that went from before birth to, you know, almost adult, which is very exciting. Um, for That's an interesting. So baby teeth, do that give, does that give you some information about the gestation period and possibly the health of the mother as well? Well, that's something actually that is that is very cutting edge science right now. And actually, most of my uh, recent work at the Natural History Museum in London has been on a very similar question. So um, the shortest answer to that is probably <laughs> <laughs> the longest answer is uh, really long. So <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Maybe. <laughs> that I will definitely have to talk to you again about that topic. <laughs> It's very exciting. We had some lasers. It's it's a great science, and we're hoping that we're hoping to come out with some of those answers pretty soon. So you mentioned that it's possible to tell what type of uh, geography you that was you were in uh, when that those teeth were developing. Is this something where we can sort of find a, a skeleton with teeth in a certain space? and have a mismatch between the teeth we see and the surrounding geography and sort of conclude that this person came from maybe much farther away? Yeah, and that's actually, um, that's one of the uh, major uses of that technique. So there's a particular strontium isotope, which is given off by various types of rocks in various types of ways. Um, interestingly, I think it's also how they identify uh, fake wine. So somewhere in France, I think they actually have a map of all of this chemical signature because it gets taken up by sort of all living things. And I think that might be how they actually uh, figure out if, if they're lying to you about whether your wine is a burgundy or not. I'm not sure on that, but I heard that once and I thought it was great use of science. Um, but the, uh, the, the teeth thing is exactly that. Um, so your teeth would reflect your childhood signal. Interestingly, your bones would reflect kind of the last, say, 11-ish, 7-ish years of your life. So you might actually find a person who, um, you know, their, their teeth don't match. Okay, so they didn't grow up there. But what if their bones don't match as well? Ah, they're very recent. So, so we actually, we can, we can start using, you know, uh, a little bit of, of sort of um, common sense to, to try and ask even more complicated questions with these same techniques. That's interesting. So the teeth are sort of, like we said, like little time capsules from childhood, whereas your bones, because they will re-knit only, they, you can only tell stuff from bones, presumably from uh, X amount of time before you died. So is there a middle period there, sort of the 20 to 30 something adulthood that can be more difficult to, to figure out? Well, of course, it, it does, um, you know, it does, uh, depending on when you die. <laughs> that, uh, That's true. I suppose if you die, not always great, so. I suppose if you die when you're 30, then. <laughs> But um, yeah, so, uh, you know, that's, that's a sort of, um, well, to, to use a, a metaphor, I'm sure most archaeologists would hate, that's, that's a kind of holy grail, um, is to be able to talk about um, things that happen in life before, you know, the, the sort of period that leads up to death. Uh, and, and not just in that sort of early childhood phase. I mean, obviously, we'd really like to know about um, the, the point in the human lifespan when, lifespan when they're having babies and how many babies they're having. And because this tells us a lot about, you know, kind of a social organization and stuff like this. So we're, we're, we're all looking for something like that. And um, I think as we get better and better at um, applying various sort of scientific techniques, hopefully uh, we will get closer to those questions. Of course, if you do something pretty drastic, 
um, you know, in, in that midlife period, like break an arm and don't set it right, you will actually see the, the remains of that. Um, you know, if, if a bone hasn't healed quite properly, there are a lot of signs that we can use um, to, to sort of identify that the bone was once broken. So sometimes we do find evidence of uh, well, ancient clumsiness. And other <laughs> So I think most people would assume that when you're looking at a skeleton, that you'll be able to potentially find indicators in the bones of how somebody died, especially if that death happened to be particularly violent, or left uh, a major injury on on bones, or like you said, if there was a break that didn't heal correctly at some point. But what about other kinds of factors that aren't necessarily related specifically to uh, violence or to accident? What other types of things manage? Do we do we find in bones on skeletal remains? Well, we've we've got a huge problem in that almost everything that kills you doesn't leave a trace. So we have had to get very very creative um, in terms of figuring out you know what what was affecting people. One major thing um, that does tend to have an effect is, is certain types of diseases. So there are lots of different diseases that uh, essentially get into the bones, usually at a later stage. But if you think about it, um, your bone is a sort of slow moving. Think about how long it takes a, an arm to heal, you know, if you broke it. Um, if you were to just get a quick infection uh, and, and die of it, your bone hasn't had a chance to react. We would never see it. Um, whereas diseases that uh, take a long time to kill you, uh, you do see some evidence. And this is why... In our particular ghoulish fashion, bioarchaeologists are big fans of things like leprosy and syphilis. <laughs> I guess because we're both fun of, at parties. <laughs> yeah, that's and I, uh, I we're going to talk about it a little bit later. But you're also big fans of plagues. Um, you yeah, guys hit so all the, the buttons. So, yeah, so I mean, this is this is basically um, uh, the, where we go back to that kind of um, you know the evidence coming from how we get them out of the ground, not necessarily just looking at the bones. So with plagues, most of the early research, the only reason we knew that there were plague, uh, you know, plagues is that we would find mass graves and there wouldn't be any signs of violence there wouldn't be any sort of evidence of a, a massacre or anything like this so you know there'd just be a bunch of people all different ages people you know not not a bunch of sort of uh, people you would expect to be passing away um and uh, and and you would find these mass graves uh, of course, you know, always a question, uh, you know, what a, what a mass grave is caused by. But the real, uh, the real hero of that story is actually something called ADNA. And that's what we refer to as um, ancient DNA. So ancient DNA studies, ADNA studies is just about the most exciting, fun, complicated, expensive, whizzy, amazing scientific technique that bioarchaeologists have. And it's really, it's really come into its own with the study of ancient pathogens. So whereas, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we were all fighting about whether the Black Death had really been in, you know, uh, been uh, in Europe before, you know, the 1400s or where, um, you know, whether people had really died of it because it doesn't quite fit the profile of the modern disease. Now we have people who can take a sample from the bones, identify the DNA signature of the Ursina pestis bacteria, and can give us a diagnosis, which um, to bioarchaeologists uh, who are of certain vintage, 
Um, that just, it's, it's magic. It's amazing. <laughs> so is this going to help us figure out where some of these uh, diseases, these plagues, in particular syphilis, which I know is, uh, there's a lot of controversy about where that one came from, where some of these diseases actually originated? We certainly hope so. Um, it, it turns out that not all diseases are particularly easy to study in a lab. And actually, that syphilis one is that's that's pretty much <laughs> that gives everyone headaches, uh, which it, which actually does clinically as well. So that's that's a little bit of a syphilis joke for you. Oh, that's not <laughs> a good one. Um, you know, and and syphilis is well, syphilis is something that everybody likes talking about. I've never really figured that one out, but you know, it's a, a major concern. And as a you know, as an ap- epidemic disease uh, over the last five hundred years has just been an absolute fixation. So syphilis is a venereal disease. Um, it's sexually transmitted and it sort of shows up in Europe with just, you know, a bang. Uh, it, it crosses national borders. It, it goes up and down trade routes and it is just everywhere. So you get to a point where I think, um, there's some great statistic, the welcome medical library in London, about, you know, 50% of their 18th century collections are actually syphilis, uh, treatment posters. <laughs> It's a big concern. So with syphilis, um, really the big question is because it shows up in Europe about five years after uh, this relatively well-known traveler called Columbus goes on a, a little bit of a walkabout and um, yeah, a slightly rapacious tour of the Americas. And so, um, you know, the, the longstanding tradition has been to explain that syphilis came into Europe and in the same way that we devastated uh, the, well, the Europe and, and the old world uh, sort of devastated the new world epidemiologically by introducing smallpox and diseases that people weren't prepared for, that um, syphilis came over from the new world to the old and did exactly the same thing. But of course, people have started finding bodies with the very specific pathologies caused by syphilis. So bioarchaeologists love syphilis because we, we're we pretty good at identifying it. It causes very specific things to happen to your bones, one of which is a kind of, it's called karyosica. It sort of makes your skull looks like, look like chewing gum that's kind of hardened on a sidewalk. It's it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. Um, but uh, so we were actually pretty good at identifying it, though. So people have started to find cases that are before Columbus. So we are we are all very interested to see as our DNA techniques get better and as we're getting we get better at sort of keeping these particular pathogens alive long enough to study them. Um, what the real story of syphilis is. So that's still actually a big mystery. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders.
Your book um, really tries to focus in on some of the questions around the transition from um, the sort of hunter-gatherer, I guess, paleolithic lifestyle to the urbanization of people, because broadly now we do tend to mostly live in cities. Um, so what was it about that transition that, that made you want to write this book? Well, it's, it's kind of actually something that um, most of my research has been about. And I don't think I really realized, uh, I don't think I realized it at the time. <laughs> I, was, I was doing a lot of um, little projects and just things that caught my eye and things that I could, um, you know, get really interested in. And so I was looking at um, a couple different situations. One of them was very early, uh, very early village, kind of really in that transition from the kind of hunter-gatherer style living to, um, to, to the development of agriculture and, and domestication of animals over a thousand years, a site called Ashiklohoyuk, which is in central Anatolia in Turkey um, from about 10,000 years ago. And I was very interested to, um, to know about children's growth and whether children in a sort of more hunter-gatherer situation were, were sort of, um, were they growing well? Were they healthier, essentially? Than um, the kids who had agricultural, you know, were in the agricultural period. So I started off wanting to compare child health just in, in a couple different situations. So it turns out that it's very interesting <laughs> uh, looking at the transitions in child health because that tells you something about not only, um, you know, sort of just whether life was hard or not, because it turns out life was hard in the past pretty much all the time, um, but whether each little change we made to, our, to the way we organize our lives, to the, you know, the actual sort of, you know, way we make our living, um, whether it makes more humans or less, mm. whether it's kind of a, a net gain or, or, or kind of, you know, what it means, because we, like you said, you know, we are pretty much an urban species, so we are 50% urban now, and by 2030, we are expected to be 60% urban on this planet. So we've, you know, over 15,000 years, which is just the blink of an eye, considering that we had hundreds of thousands of years before where we just quite happily roamed around, you know, doing our thing. Um, you know, this is a, a major interesting change. So, you know, the, the book is looking at what are the, you know, what are the choices we made? What are the changes we made? So things like developing farming, domesticating animals, just not moving around so much, um, all the way up to, you know, the big industrial cities. Uh, and just, just having a sort of um, looking at how that actually messed with our bodies and whether, you know, physically for our species from a, you know, real bones, you know, down in the bones point of view, whether it was a good thing. So what did life actually look like at the beginning of this transition, or maybe just before the beginning of the transition? When we look at skeletal remains, what kinds of things do we see that are, are sort of notable or that are interesting when we start to look at the transition going forward? Well, a couple of the things that, um, I mean, really, you sort of, you notice these things because they're different from the next thing. So sort of, maybe be a little bit more comparative. But so if you look at the phase in uh, human history, sort of before really we settled down, and of course there are still groups that are not fully settled and there are lots of different groups who um, make their living without being farmers or, you know, um, settled people. But if, if we go back to when there were really no settled people, um, 
you see a couple different um, sort of basically shapes and sizes that are related to how people are living. So uh, in the same way that your bone sort of knits itself back together if it breaks, your bone responds to all of the forces that you put on it in life. Um, so if you think about, uh, you know, someone who's walking a lot or running a lot, they're eventually going to build up more bone in their legs. Uh, and they're going to move, build it up in specific directions and specific shapes because those muscles need more bone to pull, you know, to hang on to. So the bone's going to respond. They're putting more force on it. And eventually you build up slightly kind of um, differently shaped legs just because, you know, you're a highly functioning sort of, you know, uh, long distance walker, long distance jogger, whatever, whatever we were doing. And this is something that's very interesting. So we can actually look at the shape of um, particularly lower leg bones and compare them to things like elite athletes today, uh, ultra marathon runners, cross country runners. And we can actually look at that and say um, there are real distinct differences between um, our sort of what we think of as high activity legs and uh, the, the skinny scrawny little farmer legs that we got afterwards. So now so this is, is this something that happens throughout a person's life that these changes are? Or is this something that is seen more evolutionary as in, uh, if you have longer legs, you're more likely to survive and have kids? Well, we've got um, we've we've got a real problem in that we only really find the legs at one point in someone's life, right. which is when they died. So, so we can only really look at um, sort of long term change, and it's it's the sort of um, but we do see statistically, you know, if you if you add it up and if you look at the complicated sort of shapes and geometry of of the limb bones, there's been some great studies that really do seem to suggest. When people stopped moving around, uh, our legs just change shape ever so slightly. So they're, they're sort of a little bit weedier. Um, not necessarily uh, so much shorter, though um, possibly our hunter-gatherers um, were in fact a little bit taller than the first farmers, which is interesting because we don't really know if that's because they were different populations and just some people were you know tall and some people were short and the short people replaced the tall people because uh, the you know the tall people moved out or if because our first experiments in kind of settling down really um people weren't weren't getting optimum nutrition people were having lots of growth interruptions, which takes us back to those tree rings that, and teeth that I was talking about, um, which made them not grow to their full height potential. So they were a little bit stunted. So these are all really kind of interesting questions, which, which the book goes into. Um, and of course, the other thing is, is of course, hunter-gatherer skulls and teeth, which is far more fun. Well, then let's talk about hunter-gatherer teeth. Uh, one of the things that I found really interesting is that we are able to start to, to look at and see what types of food people ate quite a bit farther back than I would have anticipated. Yeah, so it, it turns out that we weren't very good at finding a lot of the types of evidence for, um, for you know, the types of food we eat. One of the problems is that we just weren't looking hard enough. So if you imagine, um, you know, an archaeologist is going with their shovel and they're digging up this little area and they find, okay, some, some sheep bones or some cow bones or some deer bones and they've got cut marks on them just like you would from your butcher. Ah, okay, you know, that's food. But what people weren't looking for are the little tiny residues of seeds, 
um, the little crystalline structures from plants that, you know, get burnt and, and locked into, you know, the tiny crevices of, of the remains of a fire. All of those little tiny things um, we can now find with a technique called flotation and other uh, microscopic techniques, but there's an entire realm, archaeobotany, um, which looks at all the little plant remains and flower remains and, and organic stuff that actually does survive. So um, it turns out that there was, you know, if you think of a paleo diet as everyone going out and hunting a mammoth for dinner, um, that's not terribly accurate. There were, there were a whole lot of plant eating things um, happening in the past. And we can actually see that reflected in the teeth, not just in um, the, the chemistry, which I think I sort of mentioned before, you can, you can get a little bit of a signal from there, but also um, from the wear on your teeth. So everyone's teeth now pretty much, um, we don't wear our teeth unless you're a, a, a grinder, you know, you have a bruxism, which is where you grind your jaw a lot. So most people's teeth, if you if you were to just feel the little bumps on the back teeth on your chewing teeth, you, you still feel some little bumps and things. There's there's some, you know, topography there. Uh, but what we would have done in the past, actually, is ground that slowly down. Um, we would have been eating cereals uh, and other things that require processing. We would have done the processing with tools that leave grit in our food. So that stone ground flour, that, that actually leaves some stone in there. And that stuff will eventually grind your teeth down. So, so we have um, all sorts of little ways to, to look for the clues. And the other thing that we can look for at the change for farming, of course, is everyone's nightmare, which is cavities. Hmm. So uh, as, as many people might be aware, uh, the best way to get cavities is pretty much cake, uh, carbs and sugar. Um, if you sugar is the worst, but if you if you mix carbs and sugar, that basically is, is the, um, the that's the key to long lasting bacteria that eat away the enamel of your teeth. So throughout the sort of um, human story, we actually don't really see people with cavities until very late. That that's something that sort of shows up quite late. Uh, because groups are having a, a more carb-based diet, they're, they're just having you know more access to the stuff, which means the bacteria that cause cavities are having a field day. They're doing great, and we start to find skulls where all the teeth have holes in them. Of course, there are some hunter-gatherers, the ones that eat acorns, who also have terrible teeth. But it turns out, yeah, it's a similar process. It's pretty acorns are, are not a, a long-term sustainable uh, dietary option if you're not brushing your teeth fairly frequently. It turns out. Talk a little bit about the indicators of proper nutrition or malnutrition that we can find in the skeletal record and how that maybe looks different or is similar across the transition from a more rural lifestyle or a hunter-gatherer lifestyle into a city lifestyle? Well, one of the things that people talk about is um, really the beginning of urban life, the beginning of cities, like kind of when we, when we make that transition from like village to a pretty dense society, the, the thing that seems to change is... Um, kind of uh, someone has to be on top. We get hierarchies, we get status, we get um, inequality. And that inequality actually kind of feeds back into the sort of access to resources. So if you're at the top, uh, you're probably getting great food, lots of variety. If you're at the bottom, you might not be able to get the same quality food or the same variety of food as the people at the top. And we start to see evidence of this um, in sort of just straight up malnutrition, which is something that we might attribute growth stunting. So there's sort of shorter heights or um, 
extra extra big sort of lines on teeth and the sort of tree ring tooth uh, method of, of looking at growth. But there are specific diseases which are caused by vitamin deficiencies. So you might not you might might not think that um, the rise of cities is what gives us sort of scurvy. Uh, but it actually it's not all pirates. So scurvy is when you don't have enough vitamin C. And it can actually um, affect your bones. There are little specific uh, lesions that happen on the inside of your eye sockets and things, particularly bad for kids. And, um, and we start to see the very first evidence of things like vitamin C deficiency, like scurvy, really, um, they, they exist before, but they don't really become a major thing until we have kind of urban life. The same thing happens for vitamin D. So vitamin D is a big deal. That's pretty important for how you build your bones and your teeth. And if you don't have enough vitamin D, which for some reason we are just not very good at making, we uh, we have to have vitamin D from food and from sun. Uh, so if you're not getting enough sunlight uh, and you're not getting enough vitamin D in your food, you're in trouble because you get rickets. And rickets is not a very nice condition. Rickets is where... Um, you, you lose bone density, you lose the bone mineral. And uh, as, as that bone mineral goes, the, especially in growing bones, your bones become more kind of soft, which means the weight of your skeleton on top of them will start to bow out uh, your, your weight-bearing limbs. So the, the bow-legged kind of um, uh, poverty-stricken kind of, you know, poor, poor tiny Tim from Dickens, that's, you know, that's what Ricketts is. And that's something we start to see with uh, the kind of rise of urbanism. So these things existed before, but we see we start to see them, I assume, in increasing numbers. Sure. And they're actually, they're not that common um, early on. When we really see rampant inequality is actually when we get big, big cities, big cities that are just pulling in workers and spitting them out. Um, so, you know, it's the last kind of, it's, it's not necessarily the sort of last 5,000 years of urban history, it's, it's the um, last sort of 1,000 years or 500 years of urban history where we see the big, big differences, but they do start popping up. So how does something like the advent of agriculture change our bodies over time? Well, um, I think one of the, the biggest sort of changes is um, the, you know, the, the teeth and, of course, the jaw that holds them. Because uh, as we get more into our lovely um, breads, um, sort of something that I like to refer to as the pot noodle effect, um, people have theorized, uh, it's not necessarily proven, but people have certainly theorized that um, as we move to softer foods, we actually don't need to move our jaws as much. We don't need to chew as heavily on, you know, unprocessed fibers and things. So, you know, on the theory of, uh, you know, uh, you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, our bones actually don't need to be as robust. We don't have to have as much muscle attaching to our jaws to chew big, heavy things. So, you know, our faces start shrinking, which would be fine, except for our teeth are in our faces and they didn't shrink. So every time you look at uh, the bill for your kid's braces, <laughs> thank an early farmer. That's interesting, because that's something that we don't really think that much about. I mean, I think people in general, obviously, uh, bioarchaeologists think about this a lot. But why do we have such gigantic teeth? Like, why is orthodontics a thing that we even have to concern ourselves with? And it's it's interesting to think that something that's kind of a 
a really common modern annoyance and and problem for some people has its its origins way way back to to before agriculture or to the shift to agriculture. Very much so. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is that there's been suggestions that um, fewer and fewer people are born with uh, third molars with wisdom teeth. Mm. That this is a, a trait that um, there's, there's an idea that essentially your, your wisdom teeth, if you just don't have room for them at all, they might never form. For a lot of us, it just means that they formed, but they didn't come out right. And we had some very expensive, very painful <laughs> surgeries to get them out. And it was terrible and it was awful. And it was just awful. Um, I, I had my wisdom teeth. Uh, they, I, I got all of them, but none of them in the right place. Um, but I'm also in that club. Yeah. But several people um, either, you know, you, you have a spectrum from people who their wisdom teeth came into jaws and fit perfectly to people who just didn't have any at all. Um, and some of that is population dependent. So there are certain groups around the world that some of them have more wisdom teeth and some of them have a tendency not to. But, um, you know, that's that's very interesting. So we might find that in, you know, this is a very rapid change for a species, but we might find that we evolve ourselves out of an entire tooth. Hmm. I wish yeah. that had happened before my surgery. Oh, yes, yes. No, I, I, I am with you there. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, as we move into closer and larger groups of people, uh, we get to deal with more exciting things like greater instances of disease. Yes. So um, what a disease wants more than anything is for you to be poor, vulnerable, and living way too close to a bunch of other people who are the same. So a disease is a very, you know, serious consequence of dense human populations. If you think about it, you know, um, a disease that kills quickly can't survive in a rural environment very easily. Um, it can't survive as a sort of human-based disease. We can certainly get them from animals. Um, because if you keel over in a field, there's no one else for the disease to jump on, um, which is not in the disease's best interest. But what cities do is cities send people, goods, armies, things all across the world. So as we start getting these, these urban centers, they actually, they're all trading with each other. You start to see, um, you know, People want luxury goods from Asia, so the Silk Road opens. And yeah, sure, the silk comes down the Silk Road, but so does the Black Death. So this is this is one of these interesting things where there's lots of different factors in play. We have uh, growing inequality, which allows some people to have both the luxury of time and the luxury of resources to create a demand for objects or services from other faraway cities, which then allows sort of trade to build up and diseases which would probably previously have been fairly local and has sort of burnt themselves out before they could um, travel around too far, suddenly they have an exciting new vector to follow, which is whomever is bringing the silk from one city to the other. So there's all these these little pieces of the puzzle that, that start to build into each other. Yeah, and that's that's exactly it. And then if you add to the fact that those cities where there are people, you know, wealthy enough to go off and demand their their Chinese silk, there are people at the bottom level of those cities who um, they don't have great disease resistance because you know they they have the malnutrition and stuff like that. So they're more vulnerable to disease in the first place. So you you get a sort of double whammy whichever way you go. Um, and you know, and as uh, cities expand into what basically become 
global cities, you know, crossing over into North America and things like that, um, you just get an amazing um, variety of diseases with brand new playgrounds. So uh, people moving into uh, people sort of trafficking from Asia to Europe or um, between Africa and Europe or all of these different sort of combinations, you, you have suddenly mixed up your disease profile. And we actually see this pretty clearly in, uh, in the archaeological record. So we get major plagues um, in the big kind of global cities of their day. So Athens, Rome, and then, of course, most of medieval Europe, which just gets pretty much knocked out. Now, the plague actually does affect India and China very severely, though India kind of less so in later later episodes. But um, so we don't quite have the same amount of archaeological evidence for that yet. It'll come. So uh, just because I'm curious, we have the idea of the plague, which is usually refers to a specific plague, uh, colloquially, and then we have the idea of plagues more broadly. Is there actually like a technical definition for plague? Yeah, so um, a plague, a plague is sort of defined by the, the thing that caused it. So the Black Death is caused by Yersinia pestis. Uh, and it's actually something that now uh, it was argued about. So we actually used to just say plague because we weren't really sure what caused everything. <laughs> so, so it really was so, sort of just a lot of people died at one a time. A lot of people died. And of course, you know, uh, the people who were writing about it, uh, you know, Boccaccio in, in the uh, you know, 14th century, he was not a trained medical professional. He was not giving clinical symptoms that were going to help us diagnose uh, everything. Um, so there was a lot of argument. But um, as we've gotten better at identifying ancient DNA, we've actually been able to find the DNA of these pathogens, these disease-causing organisms. So we find um, remnants of Yersinia pestis. Of course, there are other plagues, um, typhus, cholera. These all cause huge numbers of deaths in, in a similar sort of sweeping way. Um, the plague seems to have been something particularly special at a couple periods um, in history. Though I think what a lot of people don't realize is that plague, um, you know, the, the one that killed lots of sort of Europeans, this was not necessarily its first time in Europe. And it didn't really go away. We There was actually, there were plague years uh, in Europe for, you know, what is that? 400 years afterwards, 300 years afterwards. So we, um, what we think of as sort of a, a big devastating plague. And a lot of people's, uh, a lot of people's lives and experiences would have been the sickness that comes around and kills a lot of people, but not all the time. <laughs> so it's kind of terrifying thought people had plague going around all the time. So when you look at the field of bioarchaeology, um, both really close to your area and maybe a little bit farther abroad, what are the kind of frontier stuff that gets you excited or that gets you really interested to follow up and learn more about some of the more cutting edge stuff that's going on in the field? Well, I think um, for me personally, I, I do not I do not know how we got where we are. Um, which I'm sure is a shocking admission this far into the interview. Um, but <laughs> there's, there's a lot of questions about who makes cities, what social factors come together to make people move into little dense agglomerations in the first place? What, what makes us decide that sitting down and, and not chasing, you know, the buffalo over the ridge is a great idea? What, what happens? And there are a bunch of different ways that people are looking at that. They're looking at, 
changes in social structure. So looking at, you know, whether people start uh, being more or less equal, you know, which side of the change that happens on, whether inequality drives people to move to cities or vice versa. Um, also, whether it's a numbers game, whether we just build up numbers and we, we have to adapt to the numbers that we've got. So we keep on coming up with new inventions like states and nations, you know, to, to sort of deal with our population problem. Or, um, you know, whether it's, it's mixes of different people uh, sort of coming and going through landscapes that we can't see yet. But with the sort of help of ADNA, we might be able to start tracking some of these big changes. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how, um, really how we got to be these, these urban animals. And I think, I think there's a bunch of work that's very exciting that's going to happen. Um, but we're just, we're just not ready to answer that question yet. It is interesting that reading your book, there does seem to be a lot of reasons not to move into a city. <laughs> Um, and, and your book outlines a lot of those reasons from uh, the, the sort of malnutrition that seemed to rise up, the growing inequality, um, specialized tasks that maybe weren't very good for us. Um, and, and it doesn't spend a lot of time talking about what are the potential reasons, what, what were the benefits? Because there must have been some sort of benefit because cities are really successful. Cities are very successful. So uh, the basic answer to that, so I sort of said, I, I don't know what I think. I think um, that's that's a little bit, well, maybe it's disingenuous, or maybe it's just me being very cautious. But um, humans, uh, if, you, if you were to just accuse us of playing a numbers game, villages and cities are the best thing our species has ever done. That, that blew the lid wide open. Everything we've done in the last 15,000 years has been breeding more people. And, um, you know, if you look at uh, the, the actual human numbers, I mean, we were there, you know, a city today holds more people than were alive, you know, uh, way back when. So, you know, if you think about it from a sort of species reproduction, um, it's obviously been a good thing for us numerically, whether it's been a, a great thing for the planet or us as individuals. That's that's pretty debatable. Um, we can always hope that that's also rapidly improving or will soon. But um, the you know the the very long term view from a sort of you know just a, a basic biology is uh, cities make people. Cities make more people, and that's you know if if the goal is to make more humans, then we have definitely done that. Yeah, I guess when we think about growing disease, uh, growing instances of disease, um, growing numbers of people who are starving or struggling to maintain proper nutrition, we just sort of often assume that that translate into a higher percentage of people dying. But as long as we can push out more people, as long as more babies are being born to to keep the numbers up, then I guess that growing number of, of people who aren't doing as well or people who are dying from disease still it all kind of works out in our favor because like you said we're we're cities generate people and that's um, and that's pretty much uh, exactly what we see a lot of cities are mortality sinks which means that you know more people die than are born um but of course cities they they pick up all the extras from all, all around so they're just you know a magnetic draw so you have places like london which after the plague really had a massive drop in population but um you know uh, a couple hundred years later was the biggest city in the world 
Um, and that was because it was pulling in new people. It was killing a lot of people. It was killing way more people than were actually born in the city, but it was attracting everyone. Um, and that allowed it to really skyrocket. So it was that first little pull of sort of, you know, come here, uh, earn a wage, do your specialized job. And then it became sort of an engine of its own growth. And so, you know, um, it's, yeah, it's hard to know whether uh, that's, that's really the, the best thing for everyone is, is that constant growth. But um, it's certainly what we've managed to do. It does sound a little bit like a black hole. <laughs> yeah. And um, well, yeah, for, for those of us who've ever been stuck on a broken train, London Underground, that's exactly what it feels like. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> Brenna, thank you so much for joining us today. Really interesting book and a uh, fascinating topic. And um, it's definitely uh, an area that I'm going to pay more attention to after reading your book. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for having me. And if you want to learn more about Brenna Hassett, Team Travel Blazers, or her book Built on Bones, 15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death, you can find those links in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, are up on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>